how do I find joy and fulfillment? Because the question that most people, or at least most people that come to me are asking is, how do I get rid of this discomfort? And like we just talked about, the discomfort usually is just the check engine light saying, hey, there's some really important needs going on inside of you that are not getting met. Maybe it's joy. Maybe it's fulfillment. Other times, maybe it's significance. Maybe it's challenge. Maybe it's connection. Whatever the, the deeper needs are that are not getting met, that triggers the check engine light or the smoke alarm. And so many people just, they want to get rid of whatever's making them uncomfortable and just go back to neutral. But maybe there's more. Maybe there's a higher level of fulfillment and meaning out there. Born in 92 on the block with the sharks. Come from a different cloth. Y'all would get ripped apart. You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark. We dropping nuggets like Carmelo went to Rucker Park. Now we eating from state to state. We scraped the plate. I put my eggs in the basket. Took a leap of faith. I took a chance. Now we grow and see the impact. Decoding success with special guests. Now let's bring Matt. Welcome to the show, everyone. Matt Labrie here, your host of the top 1% globally ranked podcast, Decoding Success. Really excited to have you here for this one. You may or may not know, November is dedicated to men's mental health awareness. Now, I don't want to stray anyone away because mental health awareness is important for everyone, which is exactly why we're bringing to you our incredible friend that you just heard from, who has over a decade of experience in the mental health field, our friend Trey Tucker, a licensed professional counselor, keynote speaker, and educational content creator who continues to work with individuals and groups in his therapy practice. Now, Trey's expert advice has helped him create a community well over a million followers on social, which is exactly where I found him while scrolling on TikTok. And I said to myself, this guy's stuff is great. I need to bring him onto the show. He's regularly speaking about anxiety, trauma, personal development, communication and relationships, identity and purpose. So like I said, we're really excited to have you here for this one because it is an important one. Without a doubt, I'm going to urge you to make sure that you're sharing this episode before I tell you what you're going to get out of it. I urge you to share it because there's so much value jam-packed in here. So shout out to Trey. You're going to be walking away with a few things, more than what I'm saying, but some of the things that I genuinely loved was number one, having an actionable step-by-step plan to find our identity. Who are you? Really think about that question turning our gifts into passion and uncovering what those gifts are by what people are telling us you do this really good or you really love to do. Furthermore, how to support those in your life that may be struggling with the mental health. It's really important as we continue to shift the paradigm pertaining to mental health. So with that being said, we are bringing to you our friend Trey Tucker. Yeah, long story short, I'm born in 92. Obviously, you know, my dad's a Met fan, born and raised in Queens, New York as well. And by the time I knew what the art of baseball actually was, I was really so confused by the fact my dad was rooting for the team that constantly was losing. <laughs> you know, so at the time, you know, I'm eight, nine, ten years old. I'm like, Dad, like, come on, we're, we're going to Mets Braves games. I mean, I'm watching Glavin, Smoltz, Maddox. I'm watching, you know, Julio Franco, Marcus Giles, Raphael Furcal. I'm like, I'm rooting for these guys. I'm not rooting for who you're rooting for. And that's that's how it all started. <laughs> I love that so much. Oh my god! Are you in Atlanta? I am two hours north of Atlanta. I'm in Chattanooga, Tennessee. So okay. the Braves, I mean, actually, since the Braves changed stadiums a few years ago, they're actually now just an hour and a half from me. So it's incredibly easy for me to get down there and see them. Have you? Now, have, have you, you been seen? to Truist? I have. Have you? I love that. I haven't. I haven't. I was going last year to the World Series. I was in Miami for a lot of the playoff run. I, I think I was down in Miami for 
seven days, whatever it was. And I got back and that's when the Braves were making the the push to the World Series. And I was like, you know what? I got to pull this trigger. I, I got to go do this. So I booked the flight for me and my dad. Now, keep in mind, my dad's a Met fan, but he's never been to the World Series. He's like, listen, that's a bucket list thing. I'll go with you. Let's go do it. And then... I'm going to buy the tickets to the game. And I mean, they were like 1500 for standing room only. And I'm like, you know what? I was ready to do it. My dad was like, I'm going to bail on you with that. And I said, all right, well, I'm not going to go alone. But I haven't been down there, man. I hear it's gorgeous. I hear it is like a full day thing. Yeah, I mean, you really can. Even if there's not a game going on, there's stuff to do. Restaurants and concerts and bowling alleys and stuff like that. But I mean, as a Braves fan, you got to come for a game itself. But I'll tell you, they it's a smaller stadium than the old one, which which means, you know, the seats, there's really not a bad seat. And they've laid it out really well. There's a cool Hall of Fame area behind home plate. So yeah, at any point, you need to definitely check it out. I love that you were naming off all those old Braves, man. I, those were my heroes growing up. And Chipper, Chipper is still my hero. He, I mean, ever since he got drafted, I've been, I've been just obsessed with Chipper up to, to present day. So when I played baseball, I played for a former Yankee, former Met, former former Cardinal, and I used to hear stories in high school about, you know, all of these guys, like what it was going up against Chipper, what it was, you know, in the same locker room as Jeter. And man, they're just on another level mentally. They like it's incredible. But I mean, those those are the people that I admired, you know, as I was playing the game. And people always make fun of me because they're like, oh, baseball sucks. Like, you know, I'm not watching a full nine innings on TV. Meanwhile, I could park my butt on the couch, watch a full nine inning straight, like no issues. And, you know, when you I was a pitcher, you know, so like when you have full control over a game like that, it's just it, it's so hard not to appreciate the art that it is, because literally in your hand at any moment, you can change the game. You know, you could strike someone out. You can give up a home run, give up like whatever. It, it's such a beautiful thing. I'm so glad we started off like this. This is good rapport. <laughs> yeah, me too. And I'll tell you, and you know, we can jump into this as much or as little as you want. But Chipper was the first reason that I really started getting into anything psychological because he would talk, and we can talk more about it. But there was tell there me was about some, that. Yeah, there were interview comments that he would make really early in his career. People would ask him, you know, you just have to, you have this sense of confidence about you when you're walking to the plate. Even as a rookie, you just look like you know what you're doing up there. And he would say this multiple times throughout his career. He would say, yeah, you have to have a necessary arrogance when you go out there. And I loved that term. Even I think I was probably, I don't know how old I would have been when he was a rookie, but I was, I was a young teenager. And I thought, wow, yeah, there, there is something to this where you have to go out there. Even if you err on the side of a little too much arrogance, you got to believe in yourself. And you, even if you have to put on an act for a little while on the field, then you really do have to put on this mindset of, you know what? I'm the best out here. I don't care who this pitcher is. I won't hit it out on him. So when you're saying putting on an act, I guess I get really curious about this. Yeah. At what point does putting on an act become problematic? Yeah. Right? Like how long can that period last? Are we talking just a day, like a year? Like what does that look like? So in sports, it's actually more advantageous than off the field. I'll tell you a story. Bo Jackson got interviewed by someone in his football career. I don't know exactly what point of his career, but you know, he he was legendary in football and then he also played baseball. He made it to the professional yep. levels in both sports. Probably could have made it to the professional level of whatever sports he tried. But when he was in his prime in football, somebody asked him, they said something about, you know, tell us about one of the, the main advantages 
that gave you the edge in football? And he goes, you know what? I'll tell you a secret. Bo Jackson has never set foot on a football field. <laughs> and mm. the reporter looked kind of like you just did like, huh? And he right. went on to explain. He said, I created this alter ego that as soon as I step onto a football field, Bo Jackson ceases to exist. And I forget what he, he had a name for his alter ego, but it was almost like the way he described it, it was like this professional wrestling character that he just became. And as soon as he was on that field, he was ready to literally run over and through and you know, just blow up anybody in his way. And that helped him to really flip that switch of, okay, I, I've got to turn it on on this field and bring everything I've got. And it was a way also for him to get rid temporarily get rid of some of the insecurities or any of the stuff mm. that might cloud our head in a performance type of a setting. So the short answer is it, it can work really well when in a performance arena like a sport or music or acting, something of the like. Of course, in acting, you really are stepping into another character. But sure. as far as real life, faking it actually can be helpful. But if that's the only strategy, then it's only going to get you so mm. far and people will see through it. But it really can be the maybe the first or second step of real internal transformation. But that's really where the real change happens. It's inside, but sometimes you got to kind of force your body to do something different, even if it's faking it for a while. Absolutely. Yeah. It gets me so curious because I've definitely been, you know, at points in my life where I faked it, but I bought into the fakeness, yeah. if that makes sense. And then I got stuck in that. And then when reality kind of crashed, I was like, wait, I'm not that person, yeah. you know? And I felt like that is potentially like the problematic area of, you know, having that level of confidence or arrogant, con what did you call it? Arrogant confidence? So con the quote that I was using from Chipper is a necessary arrogance. So a necessary arrogance. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. You're right. It's interesting. Yeah. And, and you're right. Go ahead, there's, please. There's a difference between arrogance and confidence. And I think that's where sometimes the whole fake it till you make it thing can kind of fall short is that, yeah, you can be arrogant and cocky. And number one, people are going to see through that. Number two, you're not mm. really going to buy into it if you're just full on cocky. And number three, confidence actually is founded in truth. In other words, there's, there's a foundation of truth. Like, for example, Chipper Jones, he knew from experience and from hard work, the combination of those two things, he had real reason to be confident. So he could then take that confidence and turn it up to on the way toward arrogance without being truly fully arrogant. But he was, he was sure. basically confident in the, the loudest way. But yeah, if somebody just starts trying to fake the confidence and their actual beliefs don't match up with what they're trying to project on the outside, it really does become this friction that maybe can sustain itself for a while. But as you alluded to, it just it's going to collapse in the end because it, it really comes down to your beliefs. Yeah. I'm curious if we can give everyone that's tuned into this an actionable actionable step-by-step -step process to putting something like that together, whether it be Bo Jackson or Chip or whomever, so that they could walk away and they could say, you know what, I have a date tonight, right? Or, hey, I have a job interview tomorrow morning or whatever it may be. What would like an actionable step-by-step -step process be like for them to be able to adopt that? Yeah. Yeah. I love this. And I, I don't know that I've ever really put together a step-by-step -step process. So let's see if we can do this on the fly. Flush it out. Yeah. So the very first thing I can tell you for hundred percent sure identity is the most important concept here, because let's, okay. let's take the date example. If, if I don't really know who I am and I don't really feel like I'm enough or I'm good enough, or, you know, whatever language you want to put to that, then 
at a core level, I'm essentially hoping that this person that I'm going out on this date with is going to number one, like me. And then if they like me, then that means that I must be good enough. But mm. there's the flaw right there. If I'm leaning on that person as my source of feeling good about myself or my source of identity, that's going to collapse at some point. Even if the date goes well, eventually the relationship is going to turn into this codependent thing where I'm dependent on this person that I'm dating to be my source of affirmation, validation, and just overall mm -hmm. identity. So on that, if it's a date night, you got to start with, okay, what's what's right about me? Because we spend so much time figuring out, oh, what's wrong with me? How do I fix what's wrong with me? And all these different ways we beat ourselves up. But I'll often ask people at the end of a counseling meeting, I'll say, all right, tell me three things you like about yourself. And it takes sometimes 10 minutes for somebody to come up with three things just because we're just not in that habit. So we got to start with step one, who am I apart from this person, apart from my job, apart from how much money I've got in the bank, whatever the performance aspects are that we try to build our identity on, who am I apart from all that? And what do I already like about myself? And that won't change whether this person likes these things inside of me or not. Absolutely. So let's break this down because I'm really curious. We, we, we know identity as who I am, but I'm really curious is who I want to be part of identity as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that's where it can get really nuanced depending on the person and the conversation, it, because you really have to flesh out why do I want to become this person? I think a healthy way to say it would be, what are the traits and the gifts inside of me? And how can I fully develop those gifts and traits rather than the language of how can I become someone else? Or said another way, how can I fully become the best version of me that I can possibly be? And then you can see, it, then it becomes kind of a, your own standard rather than some either fictional character you're trying to compare yourself to or some other real person you're trying to compare yourself to because comparison is just a trap, but we can get into more of that or as much as little as you want. For sure. Now, one thing I really like about, you know, focusing on identity first is that if you are going into that date situation, even an interview situation, right? Like just going through with the practice you had mentioned at the end of one of your sessions, you asked someone like what, what they, you know, really like about themselves. Those are really great talking points going into a date too. Like you, you know what you could actually focus on. Like that, that's a pretty brilliant way to go about it. <laughs> exactly. Hopefully it leads you to some stories that you could tell because really stories are the way that we learn about each other. And it's the way we form connections with each other. If I just, if I start listing off some of my traits, I mean, yeah, that's valuable information, but it's not really engaging. It doesn't build rapport. But if I'm on a date yeah. or if I'm in an interview, they're trying to get to know me. They don't really care about facts that otherwise, you know, they just, I I just hand them a, a note page of facts about myself. But if I want them to get to know me, then I start telling some stories. And if I start thinking, okay, well, if, if I like the fact that maybe an adrenaline junkie, I could just say that and leave it at that. Or I could tell some stories about skydiving or, you know, whatever that is that, that my adrenaline junkiness comes out. Well, people connect through stories, right? Like that's exactly what you're alluding to. That's such a beautiful thing because, and the more and more you practice telling stories, it, it's so interesting to see how like, captive and just from podcasting i see it all the time like hearing people's stories telling people's stories like you you really you know you just build that connection it's a beautiful thing i'm curious we we talked about identity as the first step what would be step 2 in your opinion so first step 1 has a couple of different offshoots or potential offshoots if you can 
fairly easily have a couple things you already like about yourself, then great, you're, you're mm. ready to kind of move on in a sense. But if you get stuck mm. and you really have no idea of who you are and what traits you might like about yourself, then that's maybe you shouldn't be dating yet. <laughs> maybe. Again, this is, Agreed. this is general information. Yeah. And then maybe you should start doing some self-reflection and that we can get into that type of angle as well. The research shows if you don't have actual self-reflection, if you don't make time for self-reflection, you're really not going to end up being happy and fulfilled. But let's take the circumstance where, yeah, you've got some some pretty good answers. You, you feel like, yeah, I, I generally know who I am. I'm not where I want to be yet, but I know some things I like about myself. Then at that point, I don't need whoever it is that I'm sitting across from to validate me. So therefore, I can go into this date as, you know what, this is just two friends spending an hour or two together getting to know each other. And with that kind of mindset, it takes the pressure off of it. Like if I'm in my own head about, well, I need this date to go well because this needs to turn into a relationship and then we need to get engaged. And, you know, you're way out in the future. But if you already kind of know who you are and you have a few, I don't know, a few things you like about yourself, it's a whole lot easier to stay in the moment. So maybe that's the way to, to shorten step two is to call it work on staying in the moment and just enjoy the person in the time you've got. A presence. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you this. That's something I'm still working on because there are many times and it's funny just looking back on past relationships, you know, the ones that I didn't think were going to turn into something turned into something. And those were it's just so funny how the world works. But I'm curious, I want to talk about alleviating the pressure of moments like that. Right. And and making sure that we are staying in the present, whether it be a date, an interview, you know, a speaking engagement, a podcast, whatever. Right. Like what's the process of really grounding ourselves? I know there's some techniques out there, but I'm curious, like what's your perspective there? Yeah. So I'll tell you a story. The first time that I ever did a TV interview that was live, I had no idea that it was going to be live. So <laughs> I'm sure they probably told me and I didn't even realize it, or maybe I missed it in an email or whatever, but I'm on the camera, kind of ready to go on Zoom. And in the other interviews I had done, you know, it was just an informal recording where I knew if we messed up, we could stop and do it over. But I'm sitting there and I hear this intro music kind of your typical like news music. And all of a sudden, I just feel my whole central part of my body just light up. My, I mean, mm. my heart starts beating faster. I feel immediately hot in my face and all the way through my torso. And I feel tense. And I'm just hoping, I'm thinking, are they going to think that, that I'm literally in, in a panic attack right now? I don't know. I don't think it actually came across as nervous as I actually felt. But in that moment, man, I was truly just overwhelmed because it, it hit so fast and so unexpectedly. So to finally answer your question of one way to stay grounded or one way to get grounded is to literally use the, the sense of touch. And so off camera, my hand was near my leg and I was just trying to touch my thumb to each finger one at a time. I was still looking at the camera. They couldn't see what I was doing, but it was a way for me to stay in the present rather than all the thoughts in my head of like, don't mess up. If you mess up, this is live. Everybody in the country, and it was, you know, it was a local TV station. It wasn't like the big catastrophe that I, I was making it out to be, but just by staying in that touch moment, I helped my brain at least as best I could stay in the moment. And then I started kind of changing the order of it. So mm -hmm. instead of one, two, three, four, I would go three, one, four. And then as I did that, it helped my brain to focus on something else besides the worries. So grounding in general, it's all about senses. You could do the touch thing. You could listen to sounds around you on purpose. You could look around the room and find, okay, what, I'm going to find five things in this room that are the color red. You know, anything like that helps your brain remember that 
hey, you're right here in the moment because, man, your brain's trying to protect you from possible things that could go wrong in the future. And sometimes it can't tell the difference between something imagined in the future and what's happening now. So those types of grounding mm. techniques remind you like, hey, this is real, not future stuff. I love that. I've actually seen on your TikTok, you had some really cool stuff in regards to like ways to calm anxiety by activating like the parasympathetic nervous system. Like what got you into that modality? Oh man, mainly first my own struggles with anxiety. Before I was ever a counselor yeah. at all, I had anxiety, you know, pretty regularly. I noticed it first in sports and then I noticed it in social situations. And so even through middle school, high school, I was always interested, like how, what's going on here? What are some strategies that I can deal with this stuff? And so I think generally speaking, if somebody's going to have some sort of struggle with mental health or emotions, you're, it's probably going to fall either toward anxiety or that end of the spectrum or toward depression. And there's multiple factors for that. But for me, I'm one that falls more toward anxiety. So just my own experience was the first thing. And then in my counseling training, most, I'd say probably 80% of the formal training that I got, it was more about changing your thoughts and Changing your thoughts mm -hmm. is helpful, but in my experience and in my client's experience early on in my career, I realized that changing your thoughts wasn't the full answer. It only brought a decent, a somewhat of a, a I don't know, I'd say maybe a 40% improvement in their anxiety. And so I thought, okay, there's got to be more than just thinking your way out of this. And what I realized is through a bunch of research and trial and error is that the solution actually has to start in your body with things like grounding techniques and the other things I make videos about, because then if your body is at least a little calmer and has a sense of safety, it's so much easier to start changing your thoughts. But if you just skip your body and go straight to your thoughts, your nervous system, which is basically your body, is going to say, uh-uh, uh-uh, what you're trying to tell me is not true. What I think is happening, this yeah. is a, the nervous system talking, what I think is happening is actually true. And it just becomes this internal argument that never ends. Yeah, it's white knuckling. I mean, w whenever I've caught myself in situations where anxiety was high and, you know, maybe experiencing some form of like a panic or whatever it may be, and I tried to calm myself down verbally like mentally i do notice that at times speaking out loud has helped but man that voice in the head can get louder and louder and louder and it's just like it's really hard to tame that without you know taming the physiological symptoms so i definitely resonate and with yeah that. and you the simple thing of saying stuff out loud is so powerful you know there's so much research that talks about why saying stuff out loud to someone else is really freeing and healing mm. but even if there's nobody else out around the room you can still say something out loud like one of the biggest tips i'll tell somebody if they're overthinking or if they maybe they can't get a thought out of their head or if they're afraid of a certain thing i'll say look okay let's so you're by yourself, just say out loud, I notice I'm having the thought that blank and you just fill in the blank. Just saying it out loud does multiple things physiologically. Number one, it resets part of your brain. Imagine that your brain is kind of divided into different sections where there's an audio section, a video section, a kind of a word section that you can only kind of hear in your head. And anyway, saying it out loud actually activates the audio part of your brain and when a brain hears something that's that's literally happening in the real world, not just thinking inside of your head, the brain is going to give preference or power to what it actually hears versus what it's actually thinking. So saying it out loud kind of mm. resets your brain in that way. And then also when you say it out loud, 
you actually get a sense of, it's almost like if you're seeing it on a piece of paper, you, you can kind of take a look at it and say, oh, you know what? Maybe that's not so true after all. So it starts to lose a little bit of power and influence over you when you do say it out loud. That's so crazy. I love this. You know, this month, actually, November is Men's Mental Mental Health Awareness Month. You know, that's why I love this show. Like, that's why I wanted you to come on because we're just two dudes chopping it up about this stuff. When you started your career, what did the landscape look like? Like, did you ever feel potentially outcasted from for the career you started to pursue. Obviously now things are shifting, which is great, but I'm just curious like what you dealt with personally, if anything. You know, it wasn't too bad. I, I literally, first of all, I will say I worked in the corporate world before I ever became a therapist. So I had enough experience to know kind of here's the landscape of what industries can look like and what percentage tend to be men versus women in the, in the field. And so sure. I knew going in that there were more therapists that were women. I also knew going in that generally speaking, women are going to be quicker to ask for help with something like emotions and mental health. So I kind of was prepared going in. But then once I saw in grad school that I was maybe, I don't know, one of the few men in the room, I thought, well, this this number one is a sad thing because men have emotions too, <laughs> contrary to some popular mm-hmm. belief. But then it's also sad that like, my goodness, if a man feels more comfortable with another man talking about this stuff, there may not be as many options for him to go to. So then I saw, okay, well, this is an opportunity. I'm going to try to make sure that I work really well with men and women, of course. But now there have been, number one, more men, far more men starting to ask for help with mental health and more male therapists coming into the field as well. What do you feel like was the shift that was made uh, potentially from a societal perspective or maybe, you know, just men have had enough with the bottling it up? I'm just curious, like, what do you feel like was the major shift for men to finally start speaking out and getting the help that they need? Uh, Myself included, by the way. Yeah, I love it. Well, I think I don't there's no there's no way to tell what the biggest factor in all of it is. But I think a huge factor is things like podcasts, videos, social media, where men like yourself, men like me, we're talking about this stuff. And when when another man sees another man talking about it, it starts to become more normal. You know, the fancy word is normalized. But I think just seeing other people talk about it makes it easier to say. And then I mean, you don't you don't have to do a whole lot of research or, or Googling to realize in the last 10, 15 years, people have been struggling more with this stuff on a really wide scale and intense level. So I think, you know, people generally don't change until the pain becomes such that they just get sick of it. Mm. So yeah, whether it's anxiety, depression, whatever it is, it just has become more of an issue and people just don't want to sit there and do nothing about it anymore. Over the last 10, 15 years, what do you feel like has created a spike potentially, for lack of a better term, in regards to you know mental health, uh, mental illness? So if you look at the research, especially with anxiety and depression, it really started to spike more around 07, 08. And coincidentally or not, mm-hmm. that was also the year, or those were also the years when smartphones became really widely used. So mm-hmm. there's a whole lot of different reasons for that. But I mean, it's, it is undeniably a factor in how we're not doing well and why we're not doing well. Now there's, there's of course other cultural factors as well and you know political strife and uncertainty and whatnot. But the the phone for for example, our brains can only handle a certain amount of information in a day. And if you think before, let's say before even TV was around, I would have had to wait until probably the next morning when I read a newspaper to realize what was going on in the world. I would have had to at least call somebody on a landline and maybe not get them. Maybe maybe I would get 
get them on that try. In other words, I, I was able to take in information at a slower pace and I had to build some patience or I had to have patience anyway. It was just how it was. You didn't have to build it. Now I can pick up my phone and I can know what's going on anywhere in the world at any given point in the day. And with that, my brain is constantly having to process new information. Also, the good and the bad part of that is new information creates a dopamine boost in my brain, which feels good, but it only lasts mm. probably about a second and a half based on what studies show as social media. Like if you see, I don't know, a video you like on social media or a news headline that grabs your interest, that dopamine release will hang around for a second or two and then... I want another one. So Gone. my brain is constantly working and working and working. So number one, that creates a ton of anxiety. Number two, without any rest, then my brain eventually is just going to give out and just collapse, so to speak. And I think that's where a lot of depression also comes in. You know, and I, I tell people this, you, if you're in the gym and you're trying to increase your biceps, you're not going to sit there and do curls for four hours and never rest them. You, you're going to work them hard and then you're going to give them 24, 48 hours of rest to rebuild. And our brain needs the same thing. It can't be constant constantly intaking and intaking. Mm -hmm. Now, do our brains not adapt to this new way of living? I mean, we're, we're talking about this happening 07, 08. We're 10 plus years removed from that period of time. Like, do our brains not adapt to what we're now feeding them? Yes, they do adapt. But the research has shown that they're adapting in a way that more like an addict's brain would adapt. In other words, the brain is going to move mm. toward what it gets from what gives it a dopamine release. And mm -hmm. So that's how right. it's going to adapt. If the social media app that I like the most gives me the quickest and a pretty big dopamine release, then I'm going to keep going back to that. So my brain ultimately is going to adapt to something that makes things easier, more efficient, and more familiar for me. So it'd be nice if, if the brain adapted in a different direction, but it thinks it's being our friend by going toward familiarity and efficiency. So we need to cleanse from this stuff. That's yeah. What and like and there's a ton of research on that too. It doesn't have to start with anything drastic. I tell people, look, start with one minute a day of silence where you got nothing you're seeing, mm. nothing you're hearing, nothing you're scrolling, and just start with that minute. It'll probably be uncomfortable just because your brain isn't used to it, but it's still going to be good for you. Then the next day, go to a minute 30, and then the next day, two minutes, you know, whatever, and then eventually get to something more drastic. You know, there's people that'll tell you, oh, you need a 12-hour fast or a 24-hour fast, and I'm not going to argue with that, but I also am going to say maybe we don't need to just jump right into that and all. <laughs> maybe we can maybe step our way to that. Yeah, I agree. There have been many times, I mean, listen, I'm born and raised in New York. We like to move fast here, you know, so every Everything I do is just like swing for the fence sometimes, but it really dawned on me probably this year and I, I just turned 30. There's a difference between intensity and there's a difference between consistency, right? Like, you know, and I had to learn this the hard way because all my life it's just been intense, intense, intense. And there was a period of time, I think back in 2019, where I would not use my phone for almost all of Sunday purposely. And it, it was nice. You know, I would walk my way to church. I would go on, you know, do my exercise at the gym, not even carry my phone with me, which could potentially be, you know, not the best thing in the world. But I realized that that didn't end up lasting, you know, but I, I appreciate the incremental view of going about that because it's something that you can adjust to over time versus like throwing yourself in the fire and then getting out because it's way yeah, too freaking and hot. You or know? just never starting in the first place. You know, that if so, the idea of mm. sitting there for 30 minutes and meditating, uh, that still sends shivers up my spine. <laughs> like I, I'm, I'm kind of, <laughs> we sound pretty similar. I like to be on the go. I like the adrenaline. And so 
sitting there doing nothing for 30 minutes. I've done it, but it still makes me uncomfortable. So in order to just get people to start this stuff and to, to sample it, yeah, let's, let's start with some bite-sized chunks. I love that. Now, getting back to you know, awareness around men's mental health. And, you know, for the the females that tune into the show too, I guess this goes for them as well. I'm just curious, like, what are the top three things, if there are, and if you might say, Matt, I can't, you know, put them in some sort of hierarchy. What are the top things we should make people aware of? As far as what keys to... to to really having solid mental health? Uh, just mental health in general. You know, I'm, I'm always curious to hear perspectives in this regard. And I, I just had a conversation around this last night. Like, we're, the month is dedicated to mental health awareness, but like, what should we be yeah, making people that, aware I of? I love that you asked this because I try to tell people these three things. And this, this is research-based. First, going back to that identity word, that's number one, who am I? Then belonging yeah. is the second word. In other words, who are my people? Who do I really get to connect well with? Who can mm. I be myself with and not have to put on on some act and worry about fitting in. So that's two. And then three is purpose. And th this is fairly recent research, mm. but it's also common sense. Research keeps showing us that instead of chasing after these, these short-term pleasure moments and this short-term happiness, let's do things that ultimately lead to happiness and finding your purpose and having a sense of meaning in your life. Those are the, the oh my gosh, those are the two biggest, I don't know, actions, steps after you know who you are and you know who your people are. Then it's time to figure out, all right, you know, why am I on this earth in the first place? And what does my life even mean? What do I want? Mm. How does one do that? That is, I mean, that is a really, really deep topic. In fact, I'll, I'll be honest with you. The other day, I got a Instagram DM from someone, a woman, and she says, listen, you know, you're so great at connecting. You're so great at speaking. But she's like, something tells me that you're looking for more, like you're looking for your purpose. And I'm not going to lie. I was offended that she said that to me. You know, whether it's because I don't know what my purpose is, whether it's because I feel like my purpose that I thought I knew is shifting. Like, how, how do you find out yeah, what that purpose yeah. and is? And there are multiple factors to it. And we can spend as long or as short as you want on it. But one of the easiest things to start with is what are my gifts? And so for example, gifts, okay. and I'm, I'm just speaking from my own experience here, looking back in my life, there were clues that I didn't know at the time were clues. But one clue, for example, was that I've always preferred to listen rather than talk. You know, I, I don't know if it's because I don't have a whole lot to say that's valuable or whatever, but I've always just loved hearing people's stories and listening to why they did certain things. Even if they don't know why they did certain things or why they said certain things, I was always just fascinated with, okay, well, what made them say that? What made them do that? This is elementary school, middle school stuff. I had no idea that it was any sort of a clue back then, but looking back, it actually does fit well in the in this world of being a therapist. Other clues, there was a guy in my sixth grade class that I was friends with, and let's say his name was Brad. It wasn't Brad, but we were friends for like the first half of the school year. And one day my teacher comes up to me and just, just me and the teacher, and she says, hey, did you know that since you and Brad became friends, his grades started to go up? And I, I remember thinking like, but first of all, no, I didn't know that. I, I didn't know his grades needed to go up and I certainly wasn't trying to do anything, but it just always stuck with me that even as a sixth grader, I'm like, what is that? That How did that happen? And then as I got older, going through high school, going through college, people just, they started to open up to me and they started to, for whatever reason, want to really grow and fully become the person that they thought they were created to be. And for 
also, whatever reason, they wanted me as kind of by their side in some of that process. And eventually those clues started to become pretty clear, like, huh, maybe maybe some version of therapist, counselor, whatever, mentor essentially might be a good fit for me. So other people, maybe your gift is numbers, other people it's writing, whatever it is, but start with clues. There's tons more ways of finding your purpose, but I think that's maybe the easiest first step. Absolutely. And the clues will keep on showing up until you finally grasp it too. At least that's what's happened in my life. Like they just just kept popping up, popping up, popping up. And it's like, all right, I'll, I'll right. listen. I'll finally listen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what, what's in you is going to come out eventually. And this that's both in positive and negative ways. Yeah. That's why on an emotional level, I tell people, look, you can keep stuffing your emotions, whether it's anxiety, anger, whatever. And that's fine. That's your choice. But just know it's going to come out one way or another. So you may as well let it out in healthy ways. Mm. For the people that haven't let it out yet, right? I'm, I started therapy when I was 27 years old. So three years ago, the reason I went into therapy was because I was I knew I was in a relationship I needed to get out of, but I didn't leave it yet. And it just brought up anxiety. And I'm like, why do I keep finding myself in this cycle? Like, and you know, for anxiety for me from a symptom perspective is like a feeling of lightheadedness. And I'm like, why am I getting this? So I put myself in therapy and man, Trey, I got to tell you, like the weight of the world was off my shoulders, you know, because I just felt like all my years of life, I was just, you know, having overwhelming life experience after, and I'm not going to call it a trauma, just overwhelming life experience after one another. And I'm just like, well, maybe this is just what life is. So for the people that are in those shoes that haven't necessarily released or explored their inner workings, what's your advice? Your body is going to be the first clue. Like you said, you got a sense of lightheadedness. So many people come to me, even whether it's a counseling session or just a casual conversation, they'll start talking about how they just don't feel right and whatever that is for them. So I tell them, look, let's let's treat that uncomfortable sensation as a check engine light. Because just like in a car, a check engine light comes on, it's uncomfortable and we want to get rid of it. Just like in our bodies, some sort of anxious symptom, it is uncomfortable and we do want to get rid of it. But if we follow that urge to just stuff it or try to medicate away immediately, then we've missed the point because it's just the check engine light trying to tell us, hey, take a look under the hood. So like in your case, for example, I don't know kind of what the revelations were for you, but the anxiety was trying to tell you, hey, there's some unmet needs going on under the hood that probably have a lot to do with whatever might have happened in the past, kind of those overwhelming circumstances that kept getting repeated. And a lot of those overwhelming circumstances that By the way, that's the definition of trauma is when your brain does get overwhelmed to the point that it just can't function as it should or it can't process the memory. But those events from the past, they actually leave injuries inside of us and those injuries cause us to make the decisions that we really can't figure out or maybe even can't break in the present moment. So start with the body. What are those physical sensations that check engine light? And what are some of the things under the hood? Maybe it's the unmet needs of going after certain partners repeatedly. What is that need that you're really chasing? It's not, obviously it's not the romantic partner. It's what the need that the partner would feel for you. And it's probably some injuries that need some healing from the past. Mm. Yeah, for me, uh, you know, and I could speak on this openly, a lot of childhood stuff, like a lot, a lot of upbringing stuff. And it's crazy how that pops up. I'm just curious, like if someone does feel all those physical sensations and, you know, the check engine lights on, but, you know, they just keep ignoring it. Like, <laughs> so to say many I'm- men, I'm not going to say all men or maybe not even most men, but many men end up getting angry or at least quick tempered and it'll hit them. And it's like, well, why, why did I just lose my cool in this moment? Because usually the 
thing we lose our cool about isn't mm. really the thing that we're most angry, excuse me, angry about. The, the saying, the famous saying is, the problem is not the problem. So if you find yourself being quick-tempered, it probably means, mm. again, I don't know for 100% of the time, but a lot of men, it means they've been stuffing all this for a long time. And they might not have even been actively stuffing it. They just stay so busy that they just put their head down and keep going. But that goes back to that importance of taking one minute of silence every day, taking a little bit of time to self-reflect, you know, talk to other people about what they notice about you, occasionally do some journaling because that's really cleansing. But yeah, if you just continually stuff it and stay busy, oh, yeah. that works until it doesn't. And then a lot of times anger and volatility is probably mm. the number one way to realize that, oh yeah, I've been stuffing this for too long. Absolutely. I'm curious, what is a question you wish Ooh, more people would ask you? I like that. I'd say... I wish more people would ask, how do I find joy and fulfillment? Because the question that most people, mm. or at least most people that come to me are asking is, how do I get rid of this discomfort? And like we just talked about, the discomfort yeah. usually is just the check engine light saying, hey, there's some really important needs going on inside of you that are not getting met. Maybe it's joy, maybe it's fulfillment. Other times, maybe it's significance. Maybe it's challenge, maybe it's connection. Whatever the, the deeper needs are that are not getting met, that triggers the check engine light or the smoke alarm. And so many people just, they want to get rid of whatever's making them uncomfortable and just go back to neutral, but maybe there's more. Maybe there's a higher level of fulfillment and meaning out there. So what does that look like to yeah, find so joy and fulfillment? First of all, it goes back to those gifts that we talked about, finding your what types of things really yeah. break your heart? Like if, for example, for me, when I first learned about the issue of human trafficking, that enraged me. I had never, mm. never heard of this concept before. I saw the movie Taken and, and I heard a couple other stories about real life men who would go into these, these awful, awful bars or brothels and they would wear secret cameras and gather the evidence and take down the bad guy and free the girls who had been kidnapped. And when I read and, and watched about that stuff, my, my heart just exploded. Like, yes, this I've got to do something about this. I've got to do something to help with this. And so then, long story short, I was able to go on some rescue missions like that. But yeah, so find your gifts, oh, find awesome. what breaks your heart, find what gets you passionate. And then also look at your prior experiences because you're the only one that has your combination of prior experiences and gifts and passions. And it becomes kind of this, kind of this puzzle that starts to fit together over time. I love that. Uh, I mean, we, we need to talk about this, these rescue missions. Like if you're allowed to speak, I can speak about in, them, in I don't know general if you are terms, or not. For sure. Yeah. I'm curious. Was it with, there's the, I believe there's an organization. Was it with this Underground Railroad? This one was not Railroad? with, that with Underground called? Railroad, but I am familiar with that organization. They do great work as well. There, there's so many good yeah. organizations that are helping in this cause. I love the fact that you did this. I'm just curious, like how good did you feel after that? Because I know anytime that I've gave or I was of service, you yeah. feel so yeah. damn good that, after that. You going know? back to what studies show, there there have been multiple experiments where you know the the participants will receive something and they'll measure their happiness and satisfaction after that, and then they'll give something and they'll measure it after that. And it's far and away once you've given something of yourself, usually something that costs you something, whether it's monetarily or time or emotions, or whatever. When you've given of yourself sacrificially, yeah, like you said, you you just you feel so fulfilled, and that yeah. man, that is really what it's about. Because if if you don't have the fulfillment and the joy, then, well, what's what's going to be replaced? What what fills that void? It's going to be things like anxiety, depression, maybe even substance use, because mm. we all have that emptiness and we just got to figure out, like, first of all, why is it there? Actually, first notice that it's there, then figure out why it's there, and then figure out, well, how do I fill this void in healthy ways? 
Now, do you have a military background or anything? I don't have a military background. I, I have a, a fairly extensive self-defense background, and that, that helped some. But yeah, the, this this can be for people that, that don't have a military background like myself. You just have to care enough to, to really put yourself on the line. For It was amazing just to hear some of these girls' stories about how they got there and what life was like mm-hmm. for them where they were. Just I, I had to stay in character, but inside I was I was just both crying inside and raging inside, but I had to purposely decide in my heart, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let this stuff out in like two days once I don't have to be in character anymore. But man, it, it was just, whew, I, I start to actually notice it in my body again, just reliving it in my brain. Oh yeah. Did you have oh, yeah. fear going into that? <laughs> so, yeah. I, How'd you, know, you step into that any, fear? If anything is worth it enough to somebody, they're going to push through the fear because if you don't have fear, there's no courage. You know, it doesn't take yeah. something courageous if, if there's no fear to push through. So if you value something, if you want something bad enough, then yeah, you'll push through the fear. And you can also use the fear as fuel because fear and excitement really feel the same in your body. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're excited about something, you're probably going to have maybe some shaky hands, some sweaty palms, some tight chest, you know, it's going to feel the same as being afraid. So you can actually just use it as motivation and fuel to get your mission accomplished. Love this. This is why I love podcasting. I mean, I learn something new literally every single day I do this. It's incredible. I did ask you a question you wish more people would ask you, but I'm curious to also learn what's a question more people should ask themselves. I would say going back to those, that number one, if I had to pick one, just who am I? And that's not what is your name. Who am I? That's not what is your job. It's not, you know, what have you produced? What have you achieved? It's all that stuff. We are, we are human beings, not human doings. So who am I apart from any of the things that I do? So the proper way to answer that question would be That's, with adjectives yeah, then. Yeah, descriptive words. Descriptive and a words. lot of it comes down to spiritual beliefs and worldview. Like, you know, do I think that I was created and placed on the earth on purpose? Do I think that I kind of randomly came about? You know, a lot of those beliefs filter into this. You know, mental health is really kind of based in five areas. It's, it's physical, it's mental, it's emotional, it's relational, and it's spiritual. Those five areas combine to just kind of determine how we're doing and how we're feeling. Can all five of those areas no, I don't be think balanced at the same time? Yeah, I think that word balance is, is, to me, it puts too much pressure on a person of almost any kind of balance, whether it's work-life balance or financial balance. I think, think of it more like a symphony where at certain points, all the instruments are going to be playing. And then at certain points, only a few will be playing. So you zoom out and look at the whole sure. symphony, you realize, okay, it all it all works together for good in the end. And same thing with balance. There are going to be times in your life when your work life is going great and your family life is in the crapper or vice versa. And so you just got to know like, okay, work can be busy for a few months. I know this can't be the permanent status of it. Same thing with family life. You know, it's it's going to get rough for a while and you got to work your way through that as well. But yeah, balance, I think personally, is just not really attainable all the time. How do you know which one of those buckets of the five to work on? So for instance, if emotional and spiritual are, you know, both at 10% and it's not as clear as a physical sensation, right? Like when, when it's physical, like you could feel it, maybe emotional, you could feel, and you could probably argue the rest of them. I'm just curious, like, yeah, how do you know that's which a, that's ones That's a great to question. On? Most of the time I will literally ask them as I'll go through all those categories with them and I'll say, all right, on a scale of one to 10, how are you doing physically? And I'll ask, how's your sleep? How's your nutrition? How's your exercise? How's your body feel on a day-to-day basis will go through pretty extensively about just what their physical life is like. And 
often if something is off in one of those physical self-care areas, sleep, exercise, nutrition, that's immediately where I zero in because if you don't get those three things at least pretty solid, almost anything else we try is not going to work very well. So I start there and then typically they can start to connect with, okay, what's going on in my body and what emotion is that? So for example, if if I feel kind of lifeless in my body and low energy and kind of deflated, well, those are sensations that we would normally attach to this emotion that we call depressed. So that, there we go. We went from physical to emotional. Well, so then let's think mentally what what thoughts are attached to this kind of deflated, lifeless feeling? Like, well, maybe ah, I don't really care about anything anymore. And ah, life just doesn't seem worth living anymore. That kind of thought. So then that immediately we've got physical, we've got emotional, we've got mental. Then we can jump to, okay, well, what are your relationships like right now? Are you feeling connected to people, whether it's romantic or friendships or family in some way? But we look at, we look at that area. And then at the end of the day, we figure out, okay, well, you've had, you have these thoughts of life's just rough. I don't know like what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't really care about anything. Then that's when we examine the physical beliefs of, or sorry, the spiritual beliefs of, I will, who am I? Why am I here? What do I think my purpose might be? And then that gives, that can give a real vision that gets somebody motivated to make some changes. I love this. Trey, we're going to have to do a part two. Unfortunately, I have to let you go in just a couple of minutes. It's, I mean, I could ask a million and one questions. I I genuinely mean that. Um, I I need to throw this. Yeah. I mean, I I could do this all day with you. I just want to say a couple of things. Number one, when you were mentioning your gifts and you talked about how good of a listener you are, I just want to give you your kudos there because you listen very well. And I just want to let you know that you speak very well too, because you had mentioned that you didn't necessarily know that, you know, that that was a little part of it too. So I just want to throw that out there. I also want to put out, yeah, I want to put out there that we're going to have socials, websites, all of that good stuff in the show notes of this episode. I will ask you, do you have anything going on that we should let people know about outside of, you know, what we're talking about? What I found is I have to kind of reproduce myself in a way, so to speak, because the way that I talk about specifically about anxiety, I don't hear it being talked about as much. So I made a course called Anxiety Assassin, where I go pretty in depth into some of the stuff you and I were talking about, about anxiety and what to do about it. So if somebody does want a little more in depth information and some strategies on that, then they can go to my website. And then there's a link to that anxiety course. Okay, cool. We're going to make sure that that's in there. And I guess in regards to the course, like what is the desired outcome if I'm taking this course? Like it's, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but it's hard to say that you're going to be anxiety free, right? I mean, anxiety is, you know, a natural occurring thing that, you know, takes place. Desired I'm curious, like, what's peace. the desired outcome? If, if I had to just pick one word, it's peace. And like you said, peace. it's not going to be a hundred percent peace the rest of my life. But when anxiety does come up, this course is going to teach you some tips on really, what do I do about it? And how can I more quickly get to peace? Mm, I love that. I'm going to ask you one last question, although I could ask you a million and more, a million, one more, I I swear. It's a question that I started to ask, but I'm trying to be mindful of how I frame this because it could be interpreted two ways. If Trey lives to whatever year he wants to live to, you put out as many courses, you hop on as many podcasts, you write books, whatever you want to do, you do it all in whatever time period. But the day you leave this earth, Trey could only be remembered for one piece of advice. Meaning when someone says, Trey, this piece of advice Find is attached who to are you. What is that? Why advice? you're here. Find out who are you and why you're here. We've talked about all of that today. So Trey, I appreciate this, man. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Again, for everyone tuned in, watching, listening, whatever you're up to, show notes will have websites, socials, courses, all of that good stuff. So Trey, thank you so much, man. Thank you, Matt. You have a great rest of the day. Look forward to doing this again. 
You have just tuned into the Decoding Success Podcast as we honor November as Men's Mental Health Awareness Month. To that point, I want to give a huge shout out to Trey Tucker for adding value here on this episode. Furthermore, I want to give you a shout out for receiving that value. And to that point, I want to urge you to make sure that you are sharing this episode with the people that are in your life because you want to know what? There may be someone close to you that's struggling and really needs to hear these words or really needs to feel seen or heard or understood, and you have the opportunity to bring that to them. So whether you share it on social media, word of mouth, in your group chats, however, wherever, we are urging you to share this episode. To check out Trey, you could do so in the show notes. As always, websites, socials, all of that good stuff to get in contact, check out what he's up to. It's in the show notes of this episode. And until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.